it's like around 8.30 Mountain. If you're tuning in live, 10.30 Eastern-ish on this Tuesday morning. Welcome to Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson with you. Uh, Let me remind you that for many, many years, uh, as a matter of fact, let me quickly do the math. For 14 years of my professional career, I hosted traditional morning television or terrestrial talk radio shows. And when the show started, the show started and everything was timed out in 10 second intervals and it could be very stressful whether 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 you had something going on in the background or or you just needed a minute or you had to sort something out or troubleshoot or or maybe you wanted an interview to go longer well this morning we had a minute behind the scenes we needed to take a minute Samuel G. Brooks, the technical producer of this show, had to troubleshoot something at very last minute. Sam, uh, why don't you bring everybody up to speak? Can we do it utilizing the evidence that you, you, that you did properly the evidence, problem yeah, well, solve? There we go, pal. And now we got it back up. Camera four was refusing to cooperate. And, and, and you, because, you know, as you would in the moment said, hey, listen, it's like 829 Mountain Time. And, and we better go. So camera four is out. And I said, absolutely not, because Sarah Hoyles, the producer of today's show, we need camera four. Why do we need camera four, especially today? Well, we've got a very special guest coming up a little bit later in the show. Oh, I can't wait. A dancing. Oh, a, a dancing man. <laughs> a dancing man, not just. Maybe the The dancing dancing man, man, the dancing man, which we're super excited about. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Now, this is coming up in in about an hour from now. He's on what? uh, He's in an hour from now, right? Is that right? Am am I all sorted out correctly? uh, It's he's in Yukon. He's in Yukon. Um, This is going to be absolutely amazing. Um, Gurdip Pander, uh, known as uh, as Gurdip Pander of the Yukon. That's right. You know, although I know that a lot of people are saying there's no thought in front of Yukon anymore. So I don't know. We'll, we'll have to find a way here because I interviewed uh, political leadership there once and they were and they were on the spot. They were like, you know, we don't say the. Yeah. And I was like, eh, OK, is it, my, is it like my, my apologies, my apologies. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, almost exactly like that. We're we're the people that know, know, and they want everybody else to make sure that they know. Anyway, why am I getting hung up on this detail? <laughs> this is not the important detail. Camera the, four. Is the important, important detail is that camera four is ready for Gurdip Pander who's going to join us and talk about uh, uh, dancing Bangra and 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 how he is I mean the guy puts out videos from his from his uh, what do we say relatively humble location of Yukon I mean if you asked most people in the world to point out where Yukon is no offense if you ask most people in the world to point out where Canada is (laughs) (laughs) there's not a shot at Yukon Uh, they wouldn't be able to this guy's got we we just looked at at his the video that he posted we're gonna actually can we load up his uh, here's his when he got uh, uh, immunized when he got his, his vaccine his COVID-19 vaccine he posts a little dance we're going to learn about the history of the dance and why it's important if you're a podcast uh, loyalist here if you're a subscriber to our podcast today might be the day you're going to want to check out our YouTube our visual file so like this is the type of thing we're, we're talking about so Gurdip posts this photo of, of himself uh, dancing Bangra and uh, well about three million people have checked it out uh, this is he's, he's indicating his drive I'm not going to speak on his behalf we'll ask him why he dances and the significance of it but but obviously it's a way to express happiness and share joy mm. 
because his, I mean, even our audience members, when, when we announced, I think you soft announced it a couple of days ago, maybe that he was going to be on. And, and I tweeted about it this morning. It's on my Insta story. If you follow me on Instagram every morning, I update you where we're coming from there. Uh, you can check out my Insta story this morning, by the way, for, for more details on, on how I spent my late night last night, a little insight into me off hours. Uh, but I digress. And, and so this guy, I, I, people are just saying, we're thrilled he's going to be on. People, people are expecting to be inspired. But no pressure. Yeah, I was going to say no pressure. This is the guy I don't, I've never spoken to him before, but I've done deep dives into his social media. And um, I feel like he's just one of those people that just makes other people around him more happy. He just brightens rooms when he walks in. I get that sense. And those kind of people, you just love to be around, love to be around those yeah. people. I'm very, very excited about that. We've, we've got I'm going to leave some time. I promise today to get into some of your emails because we've got some great one from from uh agricultural producers that wanted to respond to our conversation yesterday about migrant farm workers being denied access to vaccines. We've got some great insight there. Um, uh, pushback from an audience member in a great way on my 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 sort of uh, off the cuff uh, brief commentary on Bill. C- see, I'm qualifying it. My off the cuff brief general non-committal commentary on the NDP's farm safety bill <laughs> from like five or six years ago now. Uh, but but some great points from Travis and Kara. So we're going to get to those. Plus, I want to get to more of your emails uh, on Palestine. We're, we're talking today um, to the director of Middle East Studies at the University of Connecticut. Dr. Jeremy Pressman, as part of our continued coverage, you know that we talked to a couple of advocates for Palestine, Musa Kaskas and Dr. Mark Ayash, uh, late last week. And um, some of you, including some personal friends of mine, members of this listening audience, as some of you have identified Patreon supporters of this show, nothing short of absolutely furious over what you heard on the show. I'm going to read some of your emails. I want to set the tone. Obviously, this is uh, subject matter. I mean, geez, look at how careful I'm speaking about it right now. I mean, real talk is that to a certain degree, uh, even someone like me with a long history of public commentary gets a little bit, honestly, nervous to talk about this kind of stuff because every single word is important. Every single word is supercharged. And we're not the ones anybody needs to feel sorry for. Right. There, there are there have been, you know, 42 people killed on Sunday as part of air raids in, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Palestinian authorities reporting 192 dead, in, including 58 kids. The Israelis reporting 10 people dead, including two kids, people taking shelter uh, from from rocket fire throughout the day. Things are ramping up. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm even gosh in characterizing what we're seeing right now. I got to be honest with you, this is a difficult one to talk about, but has it ever been more important for us to have real conversation about this, for us to have what what might qualify? Let's not pat ourselves on the back here, but somewhat courageous conversation where we say we understand that not everybody's not only is not everybody going to agree. Some people are going to be absolutely outraged by by some of the things they hear if they hear the word apartheid or, or, or ethnic cleansing or colonialism or zionism we're going to get into all of this with dr jeremy pressman that's coming up in approximately 25 minutes maybe a half hour's time so so it's going to be a great show of course this show is presented by the team at bitcoin well uh, ceo adam o'brien's going to be on the show on friday we're looking into a uh, putting some crypto commentary together number one because of what's been going on it's it's all over the map right now like does elon musk seriously control the the fate of crypto and if so how can anybody be confident about it i know adam's gonna dive into that question on our behalf plus it's bitcoin pizza day 
on Friday. What does that mean? It's not some lame story about a pizza party or a fundraiser or, or anything like that. It's a moment in history, and Adam will get into it. If you know what Bitcoin Pizza Day is, don't Google it. You know, you know, bar trivia and like all sorts of like, you know, if you're going to do Monday night trivia, all that, those things are all ruined now. Everybody has Google on their phones. It's all ruined. Don't check the Internet. I'll, t- I'll trust you. Don't check the Internet. If you know what Bitcoin Pizza Day, don't check the Internet. If you know what it is, tweet at me. I'd love to give you a shout out if you know what it is. We'll talk about it on Friday. Bitcoin Well under the sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We're going to talk about uh, a nationalized bus network, a rural transportation network. Let's let's try to describe it as generally as we can here because we want to keep our minds open to what, what could replace Greyhound. Uh, as you may or may not know, Greyhound bus services essentially across the country have, have wrapped up for good just four or five days ago on the, on the 13th, I think it was. So so just a few days ago, uh, Canadians, I would say most especially I don't wanna, I don't want to discount or assume what the demographic is or what the ridership might look like statistically. But most especially, I would suggest lower income Canadians or Canadians living in more remote communities uh, will be directly affected by this. So it is an onus on the Canadian public and vis-a-vis on the federal government to support some sort of a, of a publicly funded, like a nationalized rural uh, or remote rural transportation network. We're going to get into that in just a moment. As mentioned, talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send us emails uh, to let us know what you think about what you're hearing on the show. We read every single one of them. We take them very seriously. A lot of times your content suggestions direct where this show goes. And uh, many of you have made some great suggestions on guests in past and and our experience has been enriched because of that. Uh, Travis and Kara reached out from wine glass ranch. I love it. Uh, Just outside Calgary in stunningly beautiful Cochrane, Alberta. You can check out wine glass ranch, Alberta.com. They said, "Uh, Jess, but we caught part of your show. Uh, They said this was this morning on the way out the door to feed cows. So this was yesterday. They're on their way to the feed, feed the cows. They said, when you, when you refer to the NDP's bill six, uh, say, we felt compelled to remind you there was no pushback against the spirit of protecting farm workers. You remember this? We were, we were getting into this yesterday in our conversation about vaccines for migrant workers. And, and I had noted uh, somewhat off the cuff, well, entirely off the cuff, that it was a little surprising to me. And it still is how much pushback the NDP received when they introduced Bill 6, which if you look back on, on Rachel Notley's tenure as premier, and if you look back on that, that one-term NDP government, I think you would probably save to suggest that Bill 6 and the blow up around that was one of the huge early problems and significant problems the NDP faced because it allowed the official opposition at that time, the conservatives, to play on the fact that they didn't care about rural Albertans, right? They don't understand the Alberta farmer. They don't understand ranching families. They don't understand the impact of the carbon tax on farming operations. They don't understand the idea of the family farm and the application of things like workers' compensation and how this could bury people financially. You remember all the narrative. But I think the spirit of the bill, if the NDP was able to go back and do over, and I noted yesterday, the consultation on it was was terrible. It was it was bad. They learned a tough lesson. They were a new government. They, they did a really poor job of consultation on that. So that's what we invoked yesterday. This is what we referenced. 
back to Travis and Kara. They say, you know, we felt compelled to remind you there was no pushback against the spirit of protecting farm workers. The pushback was on three specific areas. Number one, forcing ag operations to pay workers compensation on everybody who did any form of work on the farm or ranch. They say, think about that. If you came here and pounded a staple into a post, I'd have to pay workers comp for you. The original bill specified workers comp had to be paid on kids. You remember a lot of producers were saying, hey, if the neighbors pop by to help us with harvest or something like that, that's kind of how farming works. We shouldn't have to incur paperwork and expenses. And that was part of this. Number two, says Travis and Kara, no consultation with industry before the bill was written. Valid. And number three, not allowing third party insurance, which, which later was one of the amendments, but not allowing third party insurance. The bill stated that workers comp was the only available choice for worker protection. Uh, they go on to say bill six was also touted as allowing ag workers to form unions. That was virtue signaling. Ag workers have always had that right. I would add probably that having the right or the ability is different than feeling like you have the green light to do it. Um, But hey, that wouldn't be the only industry where workers may flirt with the idea of unionizing, but may be terrified to actually follow through and do so. Travis and Kara, thank you so much for your email. Totally appreciate the perspective. And thanks for tuning in to Real Talk. Let's rock and roll on this story. Uh, Greyhound has, has essentially wrapped up operations. Uh, across Canada. And there are going to be implications uh, that are felt uh, across the country for different people in different ways. Uh, It has been the subject of a Twitter poll that's still open uh, right now. So if you still want to chime in on my Twitter at Ryan Jesperson, we invite you to do so. We've got about 1,200 votes right now. We're simply asking, uh, should Canada have a publicly funded national bus service to replace Greyhound? And uh, we're going to get to our guests in just a moment. Wanted to let you know of the approximately right now here, 1,171 votes, about 1,200 votes. Um, It's somewhat an audience divided. Uh, 51.6%. Let's call it 52% of respondents say, yep. Uh, 42%, 41.7 say, nope. And then about 7% say, well, it depends it depends. And and they've been leaving comments, or Real Talk audience members like Brandy, who says there's a much bigger conversation here, right? Uh, Brandy says as somebody who collects data for, for stats, you know, people move to rural areas because of housing costs, rent and housing purchases costs. The, 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 the cost drops dramatically in a small town. So for many, the move to rural may keep them from being homeless. We need affordable housing, right? Uh, Kelly says as somebody who grew up on the edge of the highway of tears, a national bus service that services rural communities will literally save lives. Kelly says it's a no brainer for me. Lenny wants to see the CBC and it's funding withdrawn. Lenny says, sure. Only if the revenue comes from the CBC subsidy, Lenny, a beauty who's, who's sold media by the way, in Edmonton for many years. Jill says if there was a nationally funded transportation service that connected cities, I would recommend high speed rail. Okay. So these are just a few of the comments that we're getting from real talk audience members. Keep those comments coming. Let's get to our expert guests on this it's a conversation that we we want to have uh with emily renaud uh, emily here representing canada without poverty and david mcdonald a professor at queen's university a warm welcome to the both of you emily is is this i mean essentially at its core uh an issue centering around conversations to do with poverty in canada yes at its core it is because it's a service that 
allowed people in poverty to access transit that was affordable, much more affordable than trains and other private uh, services. And it allowed them to perhaps get out of poverty by being able to access employment in other municipalities or cities and get around also accessing essential services through transit. So it is directly impacting the most marginalized rural uh, in remote isolated communities. Uh, Professor, if if you were to answer uh, my Twitter poll question, should Canada have a a nationalized or publicly funded uh, transportation network, a bus network, would it be an easy yes or no for you? Or would you be one of those that would have to answer depends? I would have to answer depends. Um, I think the the easy yes is uh, Emily's response, which is that there are uh, millions of Canadians who are marginalized and uh, aren't able to afford private transportation models. And uh, so there's a lot of good reasons for why we would want publicly funded uh, transportation networks. Um, but at the same time, we want to be careful that we're just not subsidizing uh, upper middle income people. Um, it has to be really targeted investments, uh, strategic, uh, that make sense for, for those who need it the most. And uh, so, yes, I, say, I would say that uh, a, public, a publicly owned and or managed and or subsidized uh, transportation model for targeted marginalized communities absolutely makes sense. But then I think it also needs to be integrated into a a more coherent uh, public transportation network in the country. Emily, this this may qualify as anecdotal, but what are you hearing from people or what are you hearing from remote communities? What what do you forecast to be or what do you what do you know definitively to be the impact of, of of these services coming to a conclusion, the Greyhound services? Yeah, so many people in these marginalized communities, impoverished communities, used Greyhound. And for some of them, Greyhound was actually the only service available, not just the most affordable option. So there's actually uh, been reports about students uh, worried that they're going to not be able to visit family uh, over the over the summer break or in future holidays because the mode of transportation to get their, to their communities is no longer in operation. Further, uh, you know, people who were relying on Greyhound to move around communities for work, often these small towns don't necessarily have full-time employment uh, all the time. So they are transient workers moving from town to town wherever there's employment. All of a sudden, you know, if they don't have a car, they can access this employment and it's going to further put a strain on their income. And then also, you know, we have to really think critically about people, often young people and women fleeing situations of violence. And this is especially important to think about when we're remembering all the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls across this country. Uh, A lot of people use um, Greyhound just to get out of their communities and escape. And all of a sudden, you know, they've been shut away from that service and they're stuck. And it's extremely heartbreaking. Do you think you can... uh... Uh, I want to rephrase the question before I even ask it because it was going to come across as a little bit insensitive Uh, at risk of sounding insensitive. Let me just get the question out. Do you think it's an easy sell to the rest of Canada if you present it as a as a safety issue? Do you think it's more of a compelling argument for investment if you present it that way? Well, Well, I think it's not just a safety issue. It's an economic issue. It's a poverty issue. Uh, It's it's sort of not allowing people to pursue economic engagement and, you know, engage in the 
economy and better their lives. So yes, safety is a huge issue. We cannot have a whole bunch of people, especially young people and women, relying on carpooling, relying on hitchhiking, um, as we saw with the highway of, uh, highway of Tears and a lot of uh, areas around Canada, Winnipeg notably, uh, people relying on hitchhiking. It can be very, very risky and dangerous. So yes, I think, I think safety is, um, for lack of a better term, a selling point. But I also think that it's not the only issue in this whole scheme of things. I think if we just focus on the safety aspect, people are going to say, well, then just rely on the police services in your city or your you know nearest city. Uh, oh, like, you know, there are crisis centers that you can call, but we don't want to have these populations having to rely on the police and having to rely on crisis centers because response times, um, you know, often relationships with the with the police as we're having conversations around the country always about this um, aren't always very trustworthy. So, you know, just simply having access to transportation, whether you need to flee violence, whether you need to go to another city for work, whether you need to go, you know, go to school and another town and the transit is the only way you can get there because your family can't afford a car. There's just you know, such a such a array of issues. And I just don't want to focus just on the safety, but I also don't want to ignore the safety because it's extremely critical. I think that, that, I mean, you, you've touched on so many important points there, uh, David. I'll note that this was this was from 2016. Uh, so, you know, let's call it five years ago. But you did author a piece uh, at rabble.ca. People can check out why is Canada still privatizing public services when most of the world is going the other direction uh it sounds to me like y- you might be able to make the argument that, that there's a compelling case economically uh for members of the general public to buy into this C- can you take us into where this might go politically yeah um well i mean we privatized a lot of our transportation systems in the 80s and 90s the sale of uh, uh air canada the you know, ongoing commercialization of via rail so um, we, we continue to see an erosion of uh, public services. And my, you know, I'll just uh, go back to my earlier comment about being cautious about what we invest in publicly because we, we also tend to invest uh, enormous amounts of money in public infrastructure that benefits uh, people that don't necessarily need it. I mean, in the Toronto case, you think of the, uh, you know, the special rail line out to uh, Pearson Airport. And uh, and yet, you know, marginalized people in the GTA uh, still have trouble getting to work. Um, so we just need to be really careful about what kinds of public infrastructure we invest in, and and making sure that it benefits those who need it the most. So the the overall trend, uh, particularly in Europe, um, has been uh, back to public ownership, and and transportation services has been one of the sectors where we've seen uh, quite a resurgence in in what we call in academia, remunicipalization. Um, it's not always at the municipal level. Sometimes it's it's at a higher level. But uh, so in the UK, for example, there's been a huge demand uh, to renationalize the railway systems because it's been it's been a disaster, particularly for low income families. And and there's you know, there's uh, safety questions there, as, as Emily mentioned. But there's also environmental reasons, health reasons, etc. There's lots and lots of good reasons. So the the graphs that you you were just showing there give it give a sense of um, the, the number of towns and cities around the world. And, and we, we're now up to over 1,400. Uh, I think the latest data is over 1,500 um, towns and cities around the world that have remunicipalized their, their services. Uh, the bulk of that, as you can see from this graph, is, 
is is in Europe. Um, and uh, but that's also they you know they have existing public transportation networks uh, which can be tapped into on, on a kind of network basis. Um, our uh, transportation system is so fragmented uh, and so ultimately private in its orientation that uh, you know we're we're sort of faced with building from from the ground up. So it's it's a much bigger challenge in the Canadian context. But I think that there's a lot to be learned from the experiences of places in Europe where they have just said, look, privatization has been a disaster. Um, public transportation systems make more sense financially. They make more sense environmentally, socially, health-wise, et cetera. So, um, uh, you know, I think looking at what other places have done, uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in, in Canada. I want to I just touch on some of the comments that we're seeing in our live chat right now, because there's some great ones. And then, Emily, maybe I'll come to you first. I want to give you both a chance to respond, not necessarily in the form of, of a focused question uh, grab onto whatever grabs hold of you uh you know i mean people are saying like jillian says you have to be so privileged to not value public transport like oh my gosh she says shane says i'd like to see a provincial network set up where the needs of each province or region could be served locally not federally the feds should come to the table to build and subsidize provincial efforts uh, James says, as a social service, a national busing program sounds awesome, but from a financial standpoint, it is absolutely not viable. Arnold says, a great example of why we shouldn't rely on private companies for essential services. Chelsea says, the upper middle class Canadian won't take buses because they'll still need a vehicle once they get to where they're going because our cities are either not walkable or still have crappy transit. Um, others are going in. I mean, people are talking about Bombardier. Scarlet says, I don't even think this should be just for people living in poverty. You have to consider seniors. You have to consider people who want to lessen their carbon footprint. Emily, what, do you, what jumps out at you there? Well, definitely the sort of, you know, this isn't just a poverty issue. It's a sustainability issue. I think uh, I think it is important to also think about this in the context of all Canadians. So, you know, the last comment you mentioned, seniors, that's a very important thing. Uh, people with disabilities, people uh, who need to frequently access health services. So, you know, it's not necessarily just... Um, uh, obviously, that's <laughs> Canada without poverty. We're going to focus on those living in poverty, but it is a greater, greater issue for all for all Canadians. And um, I think the the point about having it focused with the pr province running these publicly funded transportation systems. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not an expert in um, transportation policy, so uh, there's a very limited capacity for me to respond there, but I want to uh, highlight that in our constitution, section 36 uh, is outlined that the federal government has the responsibility to provide essential services and transit is an inarguably an essential services both in itself and to access other services so you know perhaps the government can the federal government can uh, set up a model where they where they provide transfer payments to provinces so that they can have an adequate and well-designed public transportation system for people but um Positively, it seems like people are mostly on board and understanding that public transportation is just an issue that's going to impact all Canadians. And it's so crucial to have that as an option, even if you do have a car, even if you do have the means to access trains and other and other private systems, just always having that fallback on a public service is so crucial. So, David, ultimately, where does this conversation go? What what happens here for, for the Canadian that, that ends up tuning into this podcast or catching this conversation, someone living in a remote part of Canada, um, somebody that may have had 
plans canceled because of, of Greyhound disappearing in, in their neck of the woods. Where does this go? I think it's a question of groundswell of opinion. And uh, it's, it's great to hear your, your, your listening audience broadly in support of, of public transport. And I think that uh, there's, there's a broad swath of Canadians who, who believe in it. You know, like me, they probably have a car, but recognize that they would much rather hop on a train to get places. Uh, it's, it's much easier. It's much safer. Uh, it's much more enjoyable. Um, but we need uh, the political will, and uh, we need that to happen at, at all levels of government. And that's been very, very difficult to pull together. And I think I'll just make one last comment here. The, one of the biggest obstacles we have is, is the financing. And... Um, you know, I, I'm actually in the midst of doing research right now on uh, on public banks, and most of your listeners would be public banks. What are you talking about? That's because we don't really have them in Canada. But these are, are state-owned banks that are purpose-driven to finance infrastructure, and they provide extremely cheap financing for the building of public infrastructure, water, electricity, transportation systems, and they're incredibly effective. Uh, and they're all over the world, um, predominantly in Europe around transportation networks. But, uh, you know, we, we, again, increasingly bring private financing into these public-private models that we have for a whole range of infrastructure. And, and transportation is is one of the worst examples of that. So we need to, you know, it, it's a multifaceted uh, challenge, um, but I just would raise for your listeners that the financing question is is a critical one. Um, and that's, you know, that's just going to take more public conversations like this, more public pressure on on our government officials to, to, to make this happen, because it's not rocket science. Uh, it's just a question of political will finding the financing to make these things happen and then uh, doing smart investments in the places that uh, that need it the most. Uh, really appreciate this conversation. You've been hearing from Emily Renault, Canada Without Poverty. You can give them a follow on social media. I, I tweet the handles to all of our guests every morning, uh, right around 10 o'clock Eastern, 8 o'clock Mountain Time. And our thanks to Dr. David McDonald, a professor of global development studies out of Queen's University. Have a wonderful day to the both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks for your comments, uh, Real Talkers. We can we can check in on this poll. I, I'll be curious to see if if the poll results are. Well, let's check in on it live now um, as we put the show together. Uh, we'll see, you know, where the poll goes. If maybe this interview has, has bumped it a little bit. Not really. No uh, negligible amount. Um, you know, picked up, you know, about 100 votes here. Numbers just about the same. Approximately 52 percent in support, approximately 41 percent against it automatically. Uh, and uh, and about 7 percent that say it depends. And I'm surprised it's not. I mean, well, for some, it would be an easy decision. Yes. For some, an easy decision. No, um, I would certainly fall in the depends camp. Um, and uh, am I like nine years old that every time I talk about this, all I can think about is adult diapers Every time I say depends, I just feel like there's an adult diaper joke waiting to happen. Anyway, I'm like, I have the, the maturity. I have the maturity. Yeah, right. I have the maturity of a nine year old when we talk about this stuff. But you know what? There was a great comment on our live chat, and I, and I hope I can find it. I don't know if I will. I think it was Korean or somebody else that basically said, we need to stop thinking about this person deserves credit. It was Linda. Linda deserves a shout out. She's because Linda's talking to people like me because I'm about to say my, my number one uh, sort of red flag on this is cost. Like, you talk to any municipality on what public transit costs, right? But then you're only talking about the the economics. What is the cost of not having public transit? And it's huge for people, right? It goes to, um, uh, I mean, it just basically goes down the ladder 
to individuals having to take on that cost. Yeah, or being totally unable to take on the cost well, of, losing, sort of losing the service, right? And Linda's right. And Linda says, Ryan, we all need to stop validating human services in economic terms. Mm. You know, she says we've been trained that social and human services must have economic benefits to be acceptable. And this redirects attention from private profits having a role in financing public goods so it's a really interesting point keep the comments coming we'll keep checking in on the poll in just a second um we're going to get into a conversation here on on the violent conflict that continues uh in the middle east we're going to get to that in just a quick second i want to remind you that the team at local waste each and every week on fridays presents trash talk as we wrap up our show every friday it gives you a chance to get whatever you need off your chest off your chest send in your rants to talk at ryanjesperson.com make sure you label them as trash talk the team at local waste has built its brand for more than 25 years local and family owned on integrity it's the corporate value it's the core value that's literally on the wall it's framed on the wall along with by the way no bs it literally says no bs i've seen the frame it's fantastic That means they're not going to sell you what you don't need. It it means they're not going to try to profit at your expense. It means they want to grow your business with you and grow your waste management service with your needs. You can check out localwaste.ca. Ask for Mikkel, Lauren, or Chris. They'd love to take your call. The team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge has the brand new Jeep lineup ready to rock. I was in there just the other day. I'm driving a brand new Grand Cherokee. Absolutely loving it, but it was the EV that caught my attention. I was raving about it the other day that's that's that electric the ev wrangler never seen anything like it i drove it around the parking lot you could barely hear it it's a remarkable vehicle you can go see the teams there at sherwood and st albert dodge they share their inventory so you're guaranteed the best selection before we get to our next guest, and I'm really looking forward to, to having him join us, Dr. Jeremy Pressman is the Director of Middle East Studies at the University of Connecticut. I wanted to tee up this conversation uh, by taking you back to late last week. Uh, on Thursday, I had a conversation with Musa Kaskas and with Dr. Mark Ayash uh, out of Mount Royal University, and uh, they talked about this conflict through a Palestinian perspective, and they pulled no punches You may remember Dr. Ayash himself asserting that he figured if that same interview was happening on the CBC, he said his his microphone would have been pulled by now. He says we've had a very difficult time getting our message, getting our story, getting our side out into the media. Well, the interview prompted some some positive comments from many of you. People wrote in and said, hey, we appreciated that. Thanks. It helped. It helped us make sense of this. I mean, how about this one from Kim? Kim wrote in to say I'm perplexed. It sounds to me like Palestinians are being unfairly treated in the Gaza Strip. I need to be educated. How did the situation come to be? Do organizations like the PLO or Hamas have the support of Palestinians or are these extremist organizations that don't reflect ordinary Palestinians? I I need to dive into this further, said Kim. All of us do, right? But then we got emails like, I mean, you know, this one, for example, from from Chloe who said, I'm, I'm distraught over the loss of life happening in the Middle East, but I was beyond disappointed, Ryan, that, that you decided to showcase only one side in this incredibly complex situation in the Middle East. Uh, their views were not only anti-Israel, but they perpetuate falsehoods that lead to anti-Semitic tropes. The number of times that anti-Semitic came up in my email inbox over the weekend, I can't tell you. One guy uh, emailed me more than a dozen times and, and called me personally on my personal phone. More than a dozen emails. Uh, 
Chloe says their history was selective at best, but bordered on revisionary. It's my sincere hope in the future when you discuss this, you at least invite representation from both sides to the table. If not, you're actually encouraging anti-Jewish sentiment. I'm fearful for downstream effects of continued biased journalism. How about this one from from Steve? Steve is a lawyer who's actually been on the show before. He was on the show before, in fact, to discuss anti-Semitism. He says, Ryan, I'm disgusted with your show. He says, quite frankly, your show on Thursday bordered on anti-Semitism. It was one sided. It called for boycott, divestment and sanction, which has been described by our government as anti-Semitic. You failed to challenge your guests. Your guests are promoting an event for Palestine using a symbol that calls for the annihilation of the state of Israel. I expected better from you. Shame on you. A prominent Edmonton entrepreneur, a personal friend of mine, she did our wedding invitations by the name of Suzanne. Says, Ryan, I've been a Patreon supporter of yours from the beginning, but but I'm sad and upset at you. I've always appreciated you saying you want both sides of a story, real talk, but I didn't hear anything from the Israeli side. I mean, keep in mind, this was one conversation. It's a 20-minute conversation with people about their perspective, but I digress. I want to, what's important here is these messages. So not once did I even hear you say you had a guest lined up in future to discuss what's happening in Israel. As a, as a Jewish Edmontonian, a Canadian with family in Israel, I'm heartbroken to see death and destruction on both sides. The story's so much deeper and so much more complex than what your guests spoke about. And, and I feel like you've given no opportunity for any real talk. Real talk with Ryan Jesperson did not happen on Thursday. That from Suzanne. And this from my friend Stacy. Stacy's the CEO of the Edmonton Jewish Federation. She's been on the show before as well. Ryan, we were surprised to see a one-sided, unbalanced approach. Two speakers from the same side, Palestine. Nobody speaking for the millions of innocent Israelis who have been subjected to sitting in bomb shelters for the last number of nights. You know, you invoking the hashtag Palestine under attack. I mean, it was the number one globally trending hashtag. Says is extremely offensive. Without taking the entire picture into context, there's no moral equivalence between Islamic Jihad and Hamas recognized terrorist entities and Israel, who is defending its citizens from attack. Stacy says, my brother was blocks away from a missile that landed in Holon the other day. There are many resources I could provide as sources for understanding here. We're surprised, Ryan, that our community was not approached to balance this story. That from Stacy. I could spend some time talking about how, how, how oftentimes talk shows work and how we develop stories over time. You, you take a look at what we've talked about with regards to any political coverage we've done. I think about coal and our coverage on coal. I mean, conversation continues over a series of shows, a series of days or weeks. But I digress. Let's get to our guests. I mean, this is a guy that's spent the better part of his career trying to make sense of the Middle East and help others understand it as well. Dr. Jeremy Pressman is an associate professor of political science. He's director of Middle East studies at the University of Connecticut. He's the author of The Sword is Not Enough, Arabs, Israelis, and the Limits of Military Force. Dr. Pressman, welcome to Real Talk. I would imagine that the emails that I'm reading here, um, you're pretty familiar with those sentiments. I would imagine you've heard it all over the course of, of your years of study on this particular region. First, Ryan, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it reminds me in the early 1990s, I worked at a think tank. It was my first job out of college in um, Washington, D.C. And when I first started writing publicly about the conflict, I would it was, you know, pre-internet, as you know, pre-social media. I would get stenciled postcards 
uh, with people saying things that I actually probably can't say on your podcast uh, from different perspectives. So yeah, I, I am familiar with that. And it's, uh, it goes, it, it goes with discussing this issue. People feel passionately about it for understandable reasons. So when we talk about this story, I mean, can, can you help us? I mean, you've been taking a look at this for, for decades. Can, can you help us understand what's changed? I mean, something happened in, in, in early to mid April, didn't it? That, that ramped this violence up again. Well, I, I think there's part of it is just happenstance in the sense that the, the Israeli state is regularly interfacing with with the Palestinian community, with Palestinians in Gaza, that's one kind of relationship, with Palestinians who live in the West Bank, that's a second kind, with Palestinians who live in uh, in East Jerusalem, that's a third relationship, and with Palestinians who live inside pre-1967 Israel and are citizens. So the, the state and society are regularly interacting, right? So these kinds of interactions are happening all, all the time. Which ones exactly spark where we are now? I can't exactly tell you why, but yeah, in April, uh, Israel made a decision, the, the Israeli government made a decision, or really I think the Israeli police made a decision, for instance, to close the area of the Damascus Gate of the old city uh, in, in Jerusalem to uh, as a gathering place for Palestinians uh, during the, the month of Ramadan, when Palestinians are often uh, socializing and performing religious rituals. That created tension and Palestinian protests against the closure of that area. Uh, secondly, we know in East Jerusalem, a legal battle, over a political battle over uh, several Palestinian homes and Israeli courts moving in the direction of forcing out the, the Palestinian residents and uh, replacing them with, with Jewish settlers. And then thirdly, uh, the confrontations that took place at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, the third holiest site in Islam, and and uh, I guess you could say sort of battles between Israeli police and uh, and, and Palestinians and Muslim worshippers. So you, you have all these specific events uh, happening, creating tension. They reflect in many ways the different relationships that the Israeli state has with different Palestinian populations. And then uh, just about a week ago, a little more now really, uh, Hamas decides to get involved and trying to uh, launch itself as the champion of the of the Palestinian people and as the defender of Jerusalem. And thus, the rocket barrage starts uh, just a little over a week ago. Can, can you help us understand the the role that and the significance of, of Hamas here? Because a lot of people are going to say, well, as, as far as we understand it, Hamas is a terrorist organization. This, this is what we understand. And, and this is um, Hamas bombing Israel and Israel defending itself. Um, so this is essentially uh, Israel's war on terror. Is that accurate? D does Hamas act on behalf of the average Palestinian? Can you help the average person understand uh, the details here? So I want to focus specifically on Palestinians who live in Gaza or the West Bank. Those are Palestinians who are, are not citizens of Israel uh, and, and they live under Israeli occupation, although Israel disputes that, that there's an occupation and disputes particularly that there's an occupation of Gaza. Uh, for, for Palestinians who live in the West Bank and Gaza, there's two main movements that represent them politically. Hamas is one of them, the Palestinian Islamists, you might call it in English, or the Islamic Resistance Movement, it's, its title. Uh, and the other movement is Fatah, 
which um, is the more, I guess you could sort of say secular nationalist Palestinian movement, although the word secular there doesn't quite fit, but that's the word that's often used. Those are the two largest political and social movements in uh, Palestinian society. Fatah, which is um, stronger in the West Bank, uh, Hamas, which is uh, stronger in Gaza and, and runs Gaza. And so those are the two largest uh, movements and they both have significant support in Palestinian society. That said, neither of them, as you know, has been successful uh, in any way, I would say, at moving Palestinians closer to their dream of, of, of Palestinian self-determination. So there's, even though, you know, this happens in Canada or the United States too, sometimes you have to pick a political party Right. But that party isn't necessarily achieving what you want and you wish you could you could do things differently. So I would say many Palestinians support either Fatah or Hamas. At the same time, many Palestinians, particular younger Palestinians, are greatly dissatisfied with their leadership and feel that the, the Palestinian approach, certainly of the last uh, almost 30 years now, since the Oslo breakthrough in 1993, feel like that approach has utterly failed the Palestinian national movement. Doctor, I want to I want to play just a, about a minute's worth of our conversation on the show on Thursday and, and get you to respond to it. Uh, and I want you to vet it, um, so to speak, because you're, you're going to hear some very direct language. Um, some some of the words um, that our guests invoked are, are words that that I think really undeniably prompted a lot of the the, the angry emails and the angry feedback that we received. You're about to hear from uh, Musa Kaskas, who's speaking on behalf of the Canada Palestine Cultural Association um, and an academic out of Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta, Dr. Mark Ayash. Here they are from Thursday. Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah specifically, these are not people that have been displaced once. A lot, All of them at least are refugees once. Most of them have been refugees twice and the third time. And now again, they're being kicked out of their home uh, for a third, sometimes a fourth time by, like you said, Zionist colonial settlers who a lot of them have no tie to Israel. Uh, unfortunately, because of uh, Israel's laws, uh, right of return laws, uh, you know, someone who has Jewish heritage or even married into Jewish heritage now uh, from anywhere in the world can come and take the home of someone who's been there for generations and generations. And uh, and the entire system, I mean, in the West Bank, uh, in East Jerusalem, it's an apartheid system. There's roads for Jews only roads, roads for Palestinians, and even the roads the Palestinians do take, they get stopped at checkpoints on a daily basis. This is every day of their life. This is not something that's happening once or twice. You know, and um, it, 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 there's a lot of provocation that goes on. You know, no one in the world would agree with someone coming into your house and saying, this is my house now. Uh, I know many people, many Palestinians, certainly many supporters of Palestine on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TV are being called anti-Semites. We're, we're put on blacklists and websites that 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 uh, call us anti-Semites and terrorists. I, I wish she was correct, but I, I'm afraid that this is still happening. I'm afraid that we're still having a really, really hard time uh, getting this story, the, the, you know, the, the reality of what's actually happening on the ground out on mainstream media. Um, um, I think we would be, if this was happening on CBC, I think we would have been, cut, our mics were cut off long time ago. Uh, that was uh, Musa Kaskas, Dr. Mark Ayash from, pardon me, from Friday's Real Talk. Uh, doctor, you know, apartheid, genocide, Zionist, ethnic cleansing, uh, accusations of anti-Semitism. This is supercharged language. Can, can you take us into it from your perspective? a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. Um, certainly the word apartheid we're going to hear a lot 
It's a word that's a loaded word. I sometimes shy away from it in the sense that then we end up debating whether it's the right word and we're not focused on the issues of Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, I, I think we have to accept that Israel has self-defined as the Jewish state. And in doing so, it has created a legal system that privileges Jews in that system. The speakers were correct that Jews from anywhere in the world have, have a right of return. That's the, 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 sorry, the law of return that allows Jews to come to Israel and become citizens. Israel does not grant that same right to Palestinians whose families may have lived there for generations. I, I, so I think by defining itself as the Jewish state, that sets up a system where some people have more political rights and more privileges than others. And it's the Israeli Jews who tend to have those privileges and Palestinians who don't, particularly Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza uh, who don't. Now, secondly, I would say that the what has been happening in Sheikh Jarrah over the, the homes and the expulsions from the homes is a very good example of, of how that um, Jewish stateness, if you will, plays out differently. So there is a law that allows Jews, if they can demonstrate that property prior to 1948 and the, the first Arab-Israeli war and, and 1948 was when Israel established its independence, if Jews can show that property was uh, formerly in Jewish hands prior to 1948, they can make a legal case to reclaim that property. Palestinians cannot do the same, right? The law is, is structured in a way that privileges the fact that you're a Jew in a Jewish state. So people don't like the word apartheid, but the, the self-definition of the state is that Jews have certain privileges that aren't extended to everyone in the, in the society. Now, that becomes a problem when we, you know, particularly I think when we look at the population between uh, the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, or in the three pieces of territory that we refer to as the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel. Because if you look at the population in that territory today, it's close to 50-50 between Jews and Palestinians. So how exactly are you going to structure some kind of stable, viable system when, when you have basically 50% of the population that's in the privileged position and 50% and that's, that's not? The other thing I think that's, that's important to add here, I don't know that it directly flows from those, uh, those comments, but I, I wanted to say about self-defense. I think sometimes we get in these sort of absolutist positions about defining things like self-defense. Israelis absolutely have a right to defend themselves. The question is, what does that mean in practice? What kind of conduct is legitimate self-defense? International law has certain stipulations about things like a proportional response, about the, uh, it being incumbent on armed forces to distinguish between civilian and uh, civilians and, and military assets. And so I, I, don't, I think we're getting into a false debate if the debate is about, do Israelis have a right to defend themselves? They do have a right to defend themselves. But the question is, what specific practices can Israel use to defend itself? And what are some of the consequences of the choices that Israel makes? The last thing I'd say about that is, um, this is the biggest flare-up since 2014, right? And there were a time when we had multiple flare-ups between Hamas and, uh, and the state of Israel. And the question for me also is, what's going on in between these flare-ups? Which parties to this conflict are trying to find a way to find a stable, fair, equitable resolution? And which parties to this conflict are thinking about how to maximize their gains? And I guess my 
criticism without trying to say that they're they're the same, they're, they're different in many ways, is that both the Netanyahu, the many governments of Prime Minister Netanyahu that he's, that he's ruled and the leadership of Hamas have made choices that are, are about maximizing their position and not trying to find any kind of equitable resolution to this conflict that would provide stability because it, it is terrible for uh, Israeli to sit in bomb shelters and, and the trauma that that's causing. And it is terrible for Palestinians to sit under uh, U.S. made bombs falling from U.S. made planes. And so leaders need to step up and figure out a way to channel what comes from a lot of the populace on both sides, which is we want a different future. But leaders are going to have to step up and, and make different choices if that's going to happen. Dr. Jeremy Pressman's our guest out of the University of Connecticut, director of uh, Middle East Studies. Uh, your president yesterday, uh, Joe Biden, um, speaking to to the media before he spoke with Israel's prime minister, uh, said, you know, basically sort of, I, I think, was in a tough position. <laughs> can we can we say with with even House Democrats seemingly divided on how Americans should be responding to this. And we'll see similar pressures, I'm sure, in Canada and probably Britain as well and other countries that have typically been, um, uh, you know, unabashed supporters of Israel. Look no further than former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper's tweet just the other day, essentially referring to terrorist activity, taking a strong stance with Israel here. Uh, President Biden essentially hinting that the American position would be Israel has a right to defend itself against indiscriminate rocket fire was the word he used, uh, but also encouraged, but did not call for a ceasefire. How does the Oval Office, how does the Biden administration manage this one? I think for President Biden, it's a very difficult situation. His perspective worked well, let's say in the 1990s, when Israel was divided between uh, left and right, and we had the Likud party on the right and the Labour Party on the left. But but in the last 20 years, the Labour Party has collapsed. And, and the people sort of most sympathetic to the Biden position in Israel are much weaker politically than they were, say, in the 1990s. And so Biden can try and uphold this position, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of uh, political parties, let's say, to work with in Israel that, that share a similar view that on the one hand, Israel should have the right to defend itself, but on the other hand, Israel should move towards a two-state solution. The, the current Israeli government definitely believes it should have a right to defend itself, but hasn't taken steps to move towards any compromise uh, resolution. So so Biden has a problem in terms of when he faces Israeli politics, who are, who are going to be his close uh, compatriots. And we've seen these tensions between uh, the U.S. and Israel. We saw the tensions between Prime Minister Netanyahu and former President Obama, right, between a, a right-wing Israeli prime minister and a left-wing uh, U.S. president. And then we saw the opposite, Right. We saw the close, almost like, you know, brotherly relationship between former President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu, both from the right side of the political spectrum. So, so Joe Biden's in a difficult position. Then you turn towards Washington and towards uh, Congress and what you're seeing inside the congressional delegation of the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party, but inside the, the, the Democratic Party, what you're seeing is an unfolding debate about the, the future of the U.S.-Israeli relationship and the future of U.S. policy and the U.S. stance on Israel-Palestine. And what's pretty striking is we knew going into this, I mean, once this, once this really kicked up last week with Hamas launching uh, rockets at Israeli civilians, once that started, we knew that there would be members of Congress who are not anti-Israel, but they are also sympathetic 
to uh, the Palestinian cause and to Palestinian rights. And we knew that in the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. What's been striking is that other members of Congress in the Democratic Party have also stepped up, people that you wouldn't have predicted. I think about uh, Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee right now, a strong, longtime supporter of Israel, uh, tight relations with APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Uh, and yet, uh, Senator Menendez Menendez the other day expressed that he was, quote, deeply troubled, unquote, by uh, the Israeli military attacks on uh, innocent civilians and on um, on media outlets. So to see Senator Menendez and some other members of Congress who we might not have expected to raise questions, it really demonstrates the extent to which this debate is, is, is picking up steam. I can't tell you where it's gonna go. And I would certainly say that the majority of the Democratic members of Congress still take a more traditional pro-Israeli position. But but that, that debate is intense in a way that I think is probably quite different, even just from 2014. Can you, of, of all of the international relationships, how important is the United States relationship with Israel? I mean, is, is it top three? Is it top five? I guess we're talking, we got to talk trade. We've got to talk. I mean, there's so many different nuances to the conversation, but, but, but how strong is the foundation of that relationship? Do you think? I think it depends, you know, sort of which end of the street you're looking from. If you're looking from the Israeli end of the street, it's really important. If you're a small country, uh, in a, a threatening environment, right? You have peace treaties with some of your neighbors and you're at war with others of your neighbors. Uh, there's the Israeli-Iranian uh, uh, relationship, if you will, or the threat that, that Israel feels from Iran. So from the Israeli perspective, being allied with the world's most powerful superpower, that's a huge asset. The fact that the United States provides Israel with almost $4 billion in military aid each year now, that's a huge asset. The fact that the United States will block unfriendly Security Council resolutions, as it has done, as the Biden administration has done over the last few days, reportedly three times, uh, statements or resolutions, that's huge. So from the Israeli end of the spectrum, this is a crucial uh, relationship. From the U.S. end of the, of the spectrum, the United States is a giant country with a giant economy. If you, if you took out Israel's military assets, if you took out um, Israel's economic assets, it, it would be a loss for the United States. But it's not, it's not comparable at all to, to the reverse. Uh, Israel is, contributes to U.S. security. There's intelligence sharing. There's, um, there's military exercises together. But it is not vital to U.S. national security in the way that the United States is to Israeli national security. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's unbalanced in that way. And, and um, that's also probably going to add some fuel to the debate in the United States because um, the United States has choices and, and, and can look in different directions if it so chooses. Doctor, I've, I've received I want to be respectful of your time. And so I'll wrap with this. I know you and I could could speak for hours, of course, uh, as we get into some of the different angles here, I've received a lot of feedback from people talking about roadblocks, the significance of that. Uh, one audience member clearly or simply stated where are these people supposed to go. There, there's roadblocks uh, in, into, you know, I mean, in, into Israel, into Egypt, where are they supposed to go. Other people are taught, you know, frozen in the snow on our live chat says never confuse a people with their government. A large ma majority of Israelis support a two state solution because they know it will make life safer for everybody uh, even you yourself uh, rhetorically asked just a couple of minutes ago i mean how do we structure a stable viable system how do we i mean where does this go 
you know, it's it's the second question on everyone's mind. The first question is, how do we stop the immediate fighting? And then the second question is, where do we go? And um, I, I don't have answers. No one has the exact answer, but I can give you some suggestions that people are talking about. First of all, as much as you know, we could talk about a lot of the violence that has been going on, uh, we also should note that thousands and thousands of Arabs and Jews have been standing together at, uh, at street corners and uh, outside holding signs say, against the war, against uh, the violence between the, between the parties, calling for um, talking about a future rather than fighting about a future. So, first of all, there is a grassroots movement that's trying to push for, um, for a different future. And that's going to be crucial, right? Because uh, we understand the connection between a people and its government and, and um, leaders can lead and they can take their country in another direction, but sometimes they need to be pushed uh, at the grassroots level. Secondly, uh, Israel itself is going to have to make a decision about where it sees Palestinians fitting into uh, the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, the Holy Land, Israel, West Bank, Gaza, right? Israel is going to have to make a decision about whether ultimately it can cease balancing the idea of a Jewish state with the idea of equality for the Palestinians, the non-Jewish people who live in that area. And I say Israel in particular, not to pick on Israel, but Israel is by far the more powerful party here, right? As, as much as Hamas would love to do great damage to Israeli civilians, right? We see that they've largely been unable to. And that speaks to Israel's superior firepower, the one of the most powerful militaries in the world, a wealthy economy, uh, an independent state for over 70 years. And so ultimately, I think Israel is going to have to make a decision. The United States can play a role in that, right? The United States can encourage Israel to have tough conversations, but it's ultimately going to be Israel that's going to have to decide what kind of future does it want uh, for, for itself, right? And, and I, I would circle back, I guess, in closing to the, the issue of self-defense. I, I, as I said, Israel has a right to defend itself. But sometimes what we do is we get so caught up in the tactics that we lose sight of the ultimate strategic objective. The ultimate strategic objective for the leader of any country is the safety and security of their people and the territorial integrity of their country. And Israel has to think about what's the best way to secure that. Are these battles that it's had with Hamas in 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, the, the battles over the Great March of Return in 2018, 19, this fight now again in 2021, whether Israel started them or not, are these the best way for Israel to achieve and protect its territorial integrity? Or does Israel need to rethink a little bit its national security doctrine and, and rethink about how it's going to relate to the full range of the population that exists in this land, whether we call that land Israel or whether we we call it the occupied territories or whether we call it the West Bank or whether we call it Judea and Samaria. And until Israel can kind of wrestle with that question in a way that creates possibilities that Palestinians could potentially buy into, unfortunately, I think we're going to be locked into this cycle. Hamas is not going to change, right? Hamas's uh, self-definition is as a resistance movement that's going to use military force, they say, to defeat Israel. And all they've done is push Palestinians further from their dreams of, of some kind of uh, 
of self-determination, equitable future. So that, that Hamas is not going to change. But Israel's the more powerful party here. And Israel's going to have to make some decision, not right now in the heat of battle, but six months from now, a year from now, it's going to have to decide, are there other pathways we can think about that, that can bring, up, bring our people together? So it's not just we're standing on a street corner protesting sometimes. It's really we're thinking about um, some kind of equitable solution. Is that a one-state solution? Is it a two-state solution? I don't know. But it, but it's something different than the status quo. Dr. Jeremy Pressman, uh, author of The Sword is Not Enough, Arabs, Israelis and the Limits of Military Force, just out under Manchester University Press last year. He's an associate professor of political science and director of Middle East Studies at the University of Connecticut. I'm so grateful for your time and your expertise on this, doctor. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You bet. Uh, what a great perspective on on what I know can be a, a very difficult uh, reality to, to wrap our minds around, to try to really understand, especially with with the implications here. I mean, geez, this is just in our neck of the woods. We recognize we have audience members that join us from across the country and quite literally around the world. But but here's just in our home city of Edmonton. Uh, that rally that that Musa Kaskas and, and Dr. Mark Ash were talking about on Friday. Well, well, here's what it looked like. If you see this on YouTube, this via some drone photography. Um, I mean, I mean, look at this. This is Edmonton's Walterdale Bridge spanning the North Saskatchewan River. You can hear the honking. You can see that stream of cars into Edmonton's downtown spanning. What is that? Two kilometers bumper to bumper. You know, a mile and a half, maybe. I don't know. Never doubt that a thoughtful, a group of thoughtful and and committed citizens can challenge. Uh, It says, meantime, Edmonton police confirming that that their hate crimes division, their hate crimes and violent extremism unit are investigating reports two reports of homes being approached uh, in neighborhoods in Edmonton that, that have prominent Jewish populations. Um, two homes being approached before anti-Semitic remarks were made over the weekend, threatening remarks. Um, I'll tell you one of the, one of the more, uh, I mean, one of the more hurtful comments, to be quite honest, that I fielded um, from a representative of, of a prominent Jewish organization just yesterday was that our conversation on this show had set the table for violent threats in West Edmonton, that we had made it permissible Uh, to perpetuate anti-Semitic spirits in this conversation. Let me be extremely clear about how this show feels and how I personally feel. Sometimes I take it for granted. Does it need to be said? Let me say on the record at no point does intimidation, threats of violence or violence itself fit any scenario in any situation, most especially uh, in conversations based on someone's religion, ethnicity, creed, background, profession, ability, disability, sexual orientation, gender expression, and the list goes on. Said Edmonton's police chief, Dale McPhee, incidents like these have no place in our city. We do not tolerate acts of intimidation or violence. We understand these acts create feelings of fear within communities. And as an organization, we're committed to keeping people safe. I mean, the, the bigger picture is that, you know, I mean, we just we just talked to the director of a documentary, White Noise, talking about the, the rise of, of extremism and in some circumstances, violent extremism in the United States. And, and we take a look at some, some of the, you know, the, the small C conservative movements, how many mainstream conservatives have, have had to fight off the pollution of their parties that we're seeing with the resurgence of of Aryan or, or white supremacist type sentiments. The evidence is everywhere. 
We saw the evidence when, when the Capitol building was stormed in the United States here in our home province of Alberta. We've seen stories reported of people on their own private property flying swastikas from flagpoles. Anti-Semitism is not something new and it remains completely unacceptable. Is conversation, understanding and exploring perspectives from from different or through different lenses on this conversation or on this story inherently anti-Semitic? I don't think so. I'm always open to your feedback. I know some of the messaging here is is taken extremely personally by people for obvious reasons. You're talking about people's ethnicities, in some circumstances, people's homelands or where people's families live. It's serious business, obviously, and the show takes it seriously. We appreciate your continued feedback. And of course, you can reach us anytime to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Our sponsors, the team at Westworld Computers wants to remind you that we have a, a fully authorized Apple service department there. They have trained technicians that for more than 40 years of their family-owned service have been upgrading or fixing, uh, quite honestly, any Apple product from your Mac, your iPad, your Apple Watch, your iPhone. You can book your appointment for service on their website at westworld.ca, or of course, you can give a call to one of their trained Apple service advisors. If you're in the Metro Edmonton region, park right outside, walk right in. They've got all the COVID-19 protocols in place. I've seen them in action myself. If you want to stay out of the mall, it's a great option. They're just north of, what is it now? The world's second largest mall? I think the world's second. I think, I, think I think they lost their... Oh, yeah. They got bumped down. I think it's the world's second largest. If I was them, I would just do a big reno. You got to be. You, you got to add on some square footage. You got to take the title back. Or isn't this what they do with like the office towers? Like... When, it, when a tower loses its title as the tallest building in a city, then they put on a huge antenna yeah. on the top. <laughs> a big antenna. There you go. Anyway, avoid the ball at Westworld Computers, and of course, they'll ship to anywhere at westworld.ca. Also, a big shout-out to the team at Friesen Brothers. Uh, yesterday, it was Kyle talking to me about their frozen potato skins. He says, Jesperson, why are you never talking about those? And then, and then that got people going on Twitter. One of you said, I can't remember if they're made in store or not. I would tell you, but I but I ate all of them. I don't have any left. So I, I think that to me is 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 the biggest, most important testimony here on this front. The new store in South Edmonton, just off Rabbit Hill Road, they've got like a forno pizza oven. They have a sourdough sandwich stand made fresh to order. They got the smoker going at all times. Unbelievable shop. Somebody said to me the other day, I, I drove all the way across the city to go there like you told me to. And I went, and? And he goes, wow. And when the answer is just, Wow. Then I think it goes without saying. Proudly Alberta-owned, Alberta-grown for more than 65 years at Friesen Brothers. Coming up in about five minutes, uh, we're going to talk to you. I'm more excited about this interview than I've been about an interview in a long time. We're going to, I would would imagine, maybe get up out of our seats and move. I don't know. I suspect that our guest may be calling us into action at some point. Did you stretch? Have you limbered up? I last stretched, I think, in in 2009. Okay, okay. Yeah, so... Um, there might be a hamstring pull. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually in that sort of, well, you know, like hikers will talk about shoulder season. You know, it's like it's like beautiful season, shul- like in between seasons, like the spring into the summer, the summer into the right, fall. Right. And some people love to hike in shoulder season. I'm kind of in the shoulder season of my life. Um, when I play like the like beer league or drop in hockey, I used to like uh, see all the old timers and they'd be all stretching it out after the skate. And I'd be like, ah, look at those old timers out of voice. You know, I'll see you in the room. Right. I was the first I get the call. I'd go right hand right to the bottom of the cooler, get the coldest one, bring it up. And by the time the boys come in, I'm probably on number two. 
right? And uh, they're, they're all stretching it out. I'm in now into the shoulder season of, of oftentimes paying the price for not stretching it out after a skate. Oh, do I miss skating? Anyway. So, yeah, no stretching. So, no stretching. But I probably. So, the that, answer is that was a, that no was a, stretching. That was a really long answer to a relatively short question. Um, by the way, Crazy James gets a shout out on the show today. James, we're going to give you three points for this. Um, we're not tracking anybody's points and they mean nothing. So, don't get too excited. But Crazy James uh, wondered if you wanted to know about the Bitcoin pizza day that I had touched on. Adam O'Brien uh, will join us as, uh, as part of a conversation on crypto coming up on Friday. We're going to try to make sense of what's going on right now. Bitcoin pizza. Today, James says, do you want us to say what it is here or just that we know about it? How about I just say it's the most expensive pizza in history? So James is going to get three points for that. As the story goes, and Adam O'Brien can tell us about it more on Friday, his insights into it. The very first, if I understand correctly, the very first Bitcoin transaction in history uh, was 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 Bitcoin for pizza. And it was 10,000 Bitcoin. Keep in mind, Bitcoin right now is, I don't know, I haven't checked today. What is It's about 60 grand, something like that. I mean, it's a lot. Uh, it's about 60 Gs. Let me check here live so I can give you an actual live readout on, on, on where it's at right now. Uh, Bitcoin is current. Well, okay, it's worth about 52 Gs right now. So 52,000 for one. Canadian. Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. So what's that? About 40 US-ish approximately. Yep. I try not to stay on top of the Canada-US exchange because it only makes me think about traveling. It only makes me want to go places we can't go anywhere. I'd rather just bury my head in the sand. And, and when we pop up and we're able to go and everybody's vaccinated, we'll start learning about foreign exchange again. But let's say 52 G's Canadian for one, 10,000 Bitcoin for two pizzas was the first Bitcoin transaction in human history. If you were the guy, Sam just buried his head in his hands. If you're the guy that sold the pizza, I mean, assuming you didn't purge yourself of all the Bitcoin after you got to be pretty happy about that trend. If my math is correct, what is that? About $600 million? Something like that? About 500 million? It's about half a why billion dollars. Why are you asking me math? Well, I don't know. Because I can't do it. That's why. <laughs> what do you mean? It was, it was on you your... You the engineer it was on, Wasn't, it, wasn't it on the job posting? <laughs> <laughs> Chase producer must have live math. Oh, you do have an engineer in the house. You're yeah. right. Sam? Yes, uh, it's about a half billion. It's about a half billion dollars for two pizzas. Which, I mean, if there was like black truffle oil and maybe some aged cheese, I don't... I mean, I don't know. But I feel like the guy that, you know, got received the Bitcoin and sold the pizza. Yeah. I'm sure he was kind of like, what is this? What? I mean, he's not, I was just holding money, but you can't hold Bitcoin. So, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure he's just like, what? What is this? Well, but, but, sir, well, I think that's exactly what it was. He, he held out his hand and he said, this is not money. What, yeah. what am I what, like? What is this? It's like, I'm going to need 10,000 yeah. of these if I'm going to give you two of these amazing pizzas. Yeah. yeah. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, can you ever get over that? I've already told my Bitcoin story. I screwed myself out of a quarter million dollars about five years ago. Did you? This was before you started. Yeah. Real quick. It was Adam O'Brien. I'm, I'm not afraid to tell the story. I'll tell you the story. Adam and I partnered on something. And it was a business deal. And, and Adam basically said, this, oh, man. Oh, I'll never forget it. It was on a tee box. And we're talking. We shook hands on the deal. We're going to do business together. And he goes, I can either give you the cash or uh, he goes, or I'll give you four Bitcoin. And he goes, you should take the Bitcoin. And I was like, eh, this is like four or five years ago. I'm like, eh, I'll take the cash. He's like, you should take the Bitcoin. I was like, nah, I'm good. I'll take the cash. And the ca- it was great to get the cash, uh, except for the Bitcoin now would be worth, you know, over $200,000. So, uh, uh, and I did not receive 200000 in cash. I can tell you, what an absolute 
anyway, life is full of missed opportunities. All right. Whoops. Some of them of our own doing. Trish was uh, all over the inbox yesterday. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. She caught our attention right away with her subject line. The meat versus vegan versus privilege debate. I loved this based on our our Thursday show around the ethics of eating. And we talked about meat and hunting. and It was a great conversation. She says, I loved your show with the polarizing panel guests. That would be an amazing title, by the way, the polarizing panel or the polarized panel. Although people might describe us as as being too divisive, Mm. which we wouldn't want. But we had we had three folks, right? So we have both sides and you can have six. Yeah. Yeah. So we had the middle. Yeah. These, These are these are composed with due thought and consideration. She says, I loved the show with the polarizing panel guests on hunting, farming and, and eating animal products and and veganism. Uh, Trish says I could I could empathize with the wishy washy comments from panelists as they struggled with morality. I think it's something many people struggle with as we learn more about plant based diets and factory farming. Trish says, unfortunately, morality doesn't always come to mind for low income households, uh, for people living in poverty or for people who are unhoused. They depend on farmed food available through the food bank and shelters or, or low cost grocery stores. They don't care where their food comes from. They need to eat and they're grateful for a meal. She says, let's talk about stretching a buck. A family of four can get the full meal deal at McDonald's or, or a Chinese restaurant for like 50 bucks. You know, whatever it is, two smoothies and two coffees and a cinnamon bun can be 30 bucks at a vegan restaurant. She says, I know I've paid it. That same 30 or 50 dollars doesn't go very far in our current economic climate. Produce prices are through the roof and a processed vegan meat substitute is very expensive, especially for the portion size that feeds one or two people, not a family of four. Hunting itself even isn't always an affordable option for someone to provide for their family. It requires the proper attire, camping gear, quads to pull the animal from the woods, a truck to haul it home. And then, of course, there's the meat processing expense with a butcher afterward. Trish says, I'm a single person household. I eat very little meat. I lean toward a vegetarian diet. My grocery bills very rarely less than 150 bucks a week after I stock up on produce and and almond milk and gluten free bread and tofu. Unfortunately, it's not the animal products that cost the most. A four liter of of milk is less than five bucks. One liter of almond milk, almost three bucks. The food bank has limited funds and donations each year and does its best to accommodate diet restrictions and allergies. But it's not sustainable to accommodate those with a strict vegan diet. Shelters depend on donations to feed the community. The money has to go a long way. A pound of ground beef for seven bucks to feed six or five bucks for veggie ground that serves two. Never mind COVID and the toll the pandemic's taken on our society with lost jobs and cut wages and people struggling to stay afloat. Trish says the only problem I have with with so-called extremists on both ends of the spectrum, she says, not necessarily your panel, is the moral high ground of positioning to to get their point across without considering what it takes to meet fundamental needs of our low income communities. These same people ration their medications so they can eat and pay the rent survival is top of mind trish says so when the poor and hungry are acknowledged it's easy to see how hunting or a purely vegan diet or even shopping at the farmer's market can come from a place of privilege then she just says damn i love this show thanks trish really appreciate your email and thanks for that other perspective means a lot 
We keep an eye on our hashtag. That's how crazy James let us know. He knew about Bitcoin Pete today. It's the hashtag that's sponsored and powered by the team at Park Power. And if you check them out online today, parkpower.ca, you can see exactly where they invest the 10% of their profits that they've committed to the nonprofits and the charities that they believe in in their community. It's all part of being locally community owned. It also means that the teams in their call centers live in the same part of the world where you live. So they understand some of your local challenges. And if you're talking about things like internet or electricity, that's very relevant. Natural gas as well. They want your business so much so that if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, at parkpower.ca they're going to take 70 bucks right off your first bill that's your first bill at parkpower.ca can we call up that that photo that we got the other day from from the the drive-through lineup sam of, of a dairy queen i appreciated this one you know right now the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park are, are sending a bit of a ripple if you will there's, there's kind of like an ice cream pun to be had there isn't there a ripple a ripple i think that's a nice the dairy queen's more the twirl the twirl the They're, curl the curl the twirl as you can see the the, the line of the drive through sam if you can pull it back up for me it, it twirls through you can see there the line i'm trying too hard this is from brad let it go, let it go. brad who visited i don't know which one this is i don't know if this is palisades nemeo newcastle westmount Y Gardens or Baseline Road, but Brad says it looks to me there's got to be a $1.99 sale on peanut butter parfaits at DQ. He says real talkers all in line picking them up. Look at that in high demand. No wonder it's like it's almost 70% off. Sarah, can you just do the quick math on that? If that's uh, $1.99 for peanut butter parfaits at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. But here's the deal. It's only till the end of May and you got to drop our name. You got to drop either Real Talk or Jespo. Just right at the drive through window or right, right where you're placing your orders when I'd recommend it. And they're going to give them to you for $1.99. Our next guest, um, potentially uh, coming up in just a moment. Sam, not yet. Okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna wait a moment and we're going to get into this. Maybe, you, know what, you know what it is? He needed to step away and stretch a bit. Oh, come on. Are you serious? I am dead serious. Okay, so our guest, can, 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 we, can you put him up? Can we get like a behind He's the scenes not on the camera green right room view? He's behind the scenes <laughs> stretching it out. Uh, Gurdip Pander, then of course we know where this is going to go. Um, he, he's, he's known as Gurdip Pander of the Yukon. Literally, millions of people can, can you show us another one of his videos here literally millions of people tune in on his instagram and on his twitter to 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 feel the joy i mean this is this is the bangara dance and we're, we're going to learn more about it about three million people in county have checked this one out this was gurdip after he got his vaccine his covid19 vaccine and uh his story and his movement um and i, and I suppose that's a bit of a double entendre uh, his movement has captivated the nation uh an amazing guy who's lived in canada since 2006 literally across the country why don't we say hello to him now i'm absolutely thrilled to welcome him to the program i'm not surprised to see him smiling so big his face probably hurts gertie pander welcome to real talk my friend hello ryan very nice to nice to meet you here in in a virtual uh um, talk with you on Real Talk. Um, I'm so excited to join in to you and with your listener listeners all the way from the Yukon outside of my cabin. Yeah, so you're in a very remote location. First of all, I'm thrilled that we, I shouldn't even say this, I should knock on wood as I say it. I'm thrilled we have a, why am I saying it? A strong connection. You're coming through loud and clear. I should never have said that. We're going to get jinxed now because you're, you're, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, right? Where are you right now? 
that is so true i am in the middle of nowhere right now i am sitting in the wilderness uh, uh it's uh, close to lake labarge lot of canadians they know about lake labarge because lake labarge is very famous due to a uh, famous poetry of famous poet poet uh, robert service um, so i'm uh, sitting uh, beside that lake close uh, outside of my cabin um in in the forest in the wilderness uh, um so yeah is 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 in the middle of nowhere you're right <laughs> you've lived uh across canada i was i was looking here i mean since you moved to canada in 2006 you have literally lived i mean almost from 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 coast to coast or or, or at least all over western canada right yellowknife whitehorse north battleford saskatoon edmonton vancouver squamish what takes a guy ac- across the country like this? So, um, so when I became Canadian, I I knew about the bigger cities like Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, but I I thought that this is not enough. I need to learn about Canada, like real Canada, because uh, I know that if you need to learn about uh, like pulse of a nation, you need to go to small communities. You need to go to villages. You need to go to communities where people often don't go to. So I decided to travel everywhere. Uh, I did not fly. I did road trips, basically. Uh, uh, so I lived in many communities, not just lived uh, as as a neighbor or something like that. I went to their gatherings, their parties, uh, uh, I did what they did. <laughs> so I, I formed those, those sort of connections, many, many indigenous communities as well. Uh, so uh, like my dad curiosity, it took me to many places in Canada. So you're the dancing. Uh, I mean, it's already taken me too long to ask you about the dancing. This has made you are a you're a cult hero. You're you're a full blown celebrity, and 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 this this form of dance uh, has I think just resonated with people, regardless of of their background. I love how you include other people in your dances when 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 COVID allows. Can you tell us about? Am I saying it correctly? Bungra. The correct pronunciation is is pangra. You are very close. Um, the thing is that that sound is is missing in Western languages. Like first sound like pangra. So uh, some of my friends tried. They tried, 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 tried for half an hour or maybe one hour, and finally they got it. <laughs> So it's Pangra, yeah. Um, yeah, if, um, uh, it's a traditional dance uh, from Punjab, like originally created by Punjabi and Sikh farmers. A long time ago when farming was tough or manual, not like these days when we have tractors and combines and many other sorts of machinery to help in farming. Um, it used to be very, very tough job. So those farmers, they created uh, this dance form out of farming activities, like every dance move represent a specific farming activity um, just for hope, positivity, and joy. Uh, even after harvesting, they used to dance Pangra. So that's how this dance originated in Punjab. Have you been, I mean, did you intentionally create what you have created? I mean, did you have a sense that what you were going to gift the world or were you going to gift your fellow Canadians would, would resonate in the way that it has? I mean, I mean, I pointed out, uh, Gurdip, you just a couple of weeks ago 
posted a video of you, you know, joyously dancing after you got your COVID-19 vaccine. Three million people have viewed that video on Twitter alone. Does that just blow your mind? Uh, <laughs> honestly, Ryan, although I wanted to spread joy, hope and positivity, but, uh, but I did not expect to go this far. I did not uh, have any sense or any planning or any goals in my mind to reach coast to coast through my videos. Uh, this happened so organically, so wonderfully, and still it surprises me, although my videos have been going viral for, for a couple of years by now, but every day when uh, I receive messages, when I see all those handwritten letters, it just surprises, like, how much this love, how much this positivity, uh, uh, like, goes, like, it's, it goes to coast to coast to coast, and, uh, and, and I receive responses from such a places which I never thought of, like Nunavut, uh, Newfoundland, uh, uh, like very, very tiny, tiny, small villages. Uh, yeah, I totally did not uh, uh, had any sense that it would go this far. I mean, you, you've got hundreds of thousands of followers on, on social media. Do you think that, I mean, you th- the timing of this as well, you say you started doing this a couple of years ago, or at least it really started catching on a couple of years ago. Do you think that there's been a, a pandemic connection here where you, where where the joy that you're bringing? I mean, it's impossible to not smile, uh, let alone move, quite frankly, when you see your videos. Do you think that you that, that, that the pandemic has almost set the stage for this to have even more meaning for people? Yeah. Yes, Ryan, that, that is uh, correct. Like um, after the pandemic, I started noticing even more engagement with my videos more people watching them, uh, more people giving me feedback that, that they, they, they were having a, a, a tough day. Um, they, 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 they maybe lost their job, maybe um, they were homeschooling uh, their children or they had to close, close their business due to pandemic. Uh, um, uh, we all know that people had to adjust uh, according, accordingly. So yeah, I started seeing a lot more response in 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 pandemic, uh, and yeah, it resonated with people like like people sitting in home. There's nothing to do. Sometimes even working from home could be boring. Uh, yeah, this this uh, this just joy. It 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 brought brought uh, uh, so much uh, positivity to, to people. People wrote me very passionate letters that. Uh, Hey, uh, they felt that uh, they had nothing to do, but after they watched my videos, they, they started doing something. Um, not just dancing, some people wrote that uh, 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 my videos inspired them to do gardening. Some people said that my videos inspired them to go for hiking or go for walk. Or you know, Some people started knitting, some people started doing other um, activities just just for uh, for to stay happy, to stay positive during the pandemic and and also not only these type of letters i i, I started receiving um, like uh, feedback from many healthcare heroes like nurses doctors uh, um patients uh, like in the hospital beds uh, um one patient patient uh, sent me very very um touching video in which uh, uh, she recorded that uh, that uh, she's in the in the bed 24/7 um, very sad, and then some. Sometimes my video shows up in her feed. Uh, it brings her 
joy than even being in the hospital bed she she try to move a little bit yeah like when i saw that i i i felt felt so much like uh, mood uh, i felt that uh, that what i've been creating is not just entertainment it's not just fun it goes beyond it it has a uh, like a deep purpose of healing deep purpose of therapy because uh, nobody wants to be unhappy right <laughs> everybody wants to smile uh, so uh, it gave gave a really a new purpose to my work i started realizing that it's also sort of social service i've been doing so yeah you're it. right pandemic gave a new meaning to it i love that you call it your work and i love that you call it a social service um Kim, by the way, says, um, I think we found our new governor general. Um, AB says this is absolutely amazing. Um, and, and I love this. Tre- Trevor M is watching here live. He says, hey, I saw this guy dancing on Twitter this morning. So Tre- Trevor, M, this is a very pleasant <laughs> surprise for him. If we spoke with your childhood friends, if we spoke with your family, would they tell us that this is absolutely no surprise would they say, oh, he's he's been the happiest guy in our entire friend circle. He was the happiest guy in the classroom. He was the happiest guy in the in the community since he was five or six years old. Have you always been this way, inspiring people, finding the joy in situations? Yeah, I've been I've been a happy person since since my early days. Yes, like all humans, I had my time of going uh, through those ups and downs like we all do. But most of my life, I've been happy. Uh, but if you ask my childhood friends or my family about videos, probably they would they would get surprised because at that time nobody thought about it that I would be living in the Yukon in the wilderness making these videos. I think that that is a surprising element to all of them. Do you um, consider yourself almost in in some senses as we talk about? I want to get you know serious for a second as as we talk about things like racism and we talk about a lot of the division that exists and we talk about some of some of the, the ugly elements of Canada and, and contrast them with some of the beautiful elements of Canada. Do you, do you believe that your advocacy and that your social service has provided an avenue for understanding into your culture and and the arts and the movement? And, and a lot of the, the theory behind what drives this dance? Yeah, yes, Ryan. Um, like, um, like when I do my dancing, I do it for joy, hope, and positivity. And there's one more reason to build cross-cultural bridges. Like I've been doing this since day one, that uh, through my dance or collaborating with people from different cultures, different genres, uh, different backgrounds, uh, just to give this message that uh, that uh, that we are people we we are humans we doesn't matter uh, how different we look uh what what at the end of the day uh, like we have same smiles fears concerns and everything you think is same so let's treat everybody um equally with respect yeah i i do feel that 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 my videos contributed uh, in building some form of understanding among people and i'm happy about that yes um we have um these type of incidents we experience um that uh, that when we look different than uh, than people treat uh, uh, others differently uh, uh which is sad but but at at that time i i think uh, it is very important to 
give this message again and again that uh, that uh, hey there's no difference between a person uh, uh, towards your left side or right side everybody is coming from like in 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 our childhood like uh, um, like when we see babies like we all love babies like uh, like if we if we could love uh, like a smaller version of same humans right why can't we do do with others um like uh, once upon upon a time everybody was just a small baby and, and yeah and and i i also encourage people to form intercultural interracial uh, um friendship connections um cuz cuz that helps us uh, spreading more education cuz when we sit with people we get chance to know about them and when we get chance to know about them we realize that uh, hey uh <laughs> what i have been thinking in my mind uh, this person has similar thoughts so uh, there's no no difference um, so yeah through my work uh, through my videos through all those cross cult- uh, cultural collaborations with the different artists people from different genres which also include people from indigenous backgrounds people from mainstream backgrounds people who came from somewhere else everyone like uh, like i'm trying to spread uh, this this vision that uh, that uh, we are people we are humans uh, let's treat everybody in that way gurdeep uh, our technical producer sam told me that you were stretching it out before we talked which which leads me to believe that potentially you may have plans or at least an, a willingness uh, to do a bit of a demo for us, and, and I would be more than happy to join. As a matter of fact, it would be my honor. Uh, I know that you're a dance teacher, um, and, and you may, you've had to hit pause on some of your classes through this pandemic. But but if you were to teach me, and and the folks that are tuned in right now, either either streaming the audio live on Mixler or watching us live on YouTube or watching this later, listening to this later, to dance the bhangra, where do we start and how do we do it? Okay, I I would be happy to do that if you can allow me just one minute so that I can switch I, the angle of my camera I towards allow, the other direction. I can give you as much time as you need because we have about a million comments on this interview, and so I would be more than happy. So why don't you take that over? Sam will let me know when you're ready to rock and roll again, and, and, and let me get to what some of the real talkers that are tuned into this are saying right now. Logically speaking, on our live chat says spreading joy can be part of so many elements of our lives. Thank you, Gurdeep. This is leadership. I love that word leadership, isn't it? Michelle's watching says, I just love this so much. Marjorie says, can we also talk about his amazing wardrobe? This guy is an absolute ray of sunshine. Kim says people who hate social media, so to speak, are missing out on the joys of of what the Internet can bring and and the access to so many interesting people in the places that they would never know about or see, says Kim. This is why social media can be the best. I love this from Marjorie, who goes on to say, by the way, this guy needs an order of Canada. So absolutely full of goodness. If this doesn't earn you officer of the order of Canada, I don't know what does. Marjorie, I agree with you. A.B. says, I'm not crying. You're crying. Hope says, I need this guy in my life every day. I've never even seen this before. Hope says, Gurdeep is my new happy pill. Dan says, what an amazing person. Jules says, I just tuned in. What do I miss? Oh, Jules, buckle up. What a show today. Sharon says, I needed to hear this today. This guy is my medicine. Penny says, I'm grinning so hard. My eyes are leaking. Brenda says, Ryan, clearly two days in a row, you are in your happy place. Yesterday, it was talking about octopuses. Today, it's talking about dancing. Bangara, you're right. 
Adventure Cycling says this is truly his calling. It's clear for his calling. Mona says it's great, Ryan, to see somebody so real on your show. Merms says he is the joy I aspire to be. That's the type of thing not to be morbid, but like that, that's the type of thing that that maybe you, you put on your tombstone. <laughs> he is the joy we all aspired to be. What a beautiful compliment. Two Beaver says, you know what? This feels better. I was becoming quite angry. But I feel bad about that now. Well, don't feel bad about it, Two Beaver. But I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that this is turning the frown upside down, as we say to our little guy. This is the impact, Gurdip, that you have on everybody. All right, my friend, I, I'm going to join you on this. So where does the tutorial begin? I'll hand it over to you. You're the expert. Sounds very good. Thank you so much. So we are going to learn one move quickly. Watch me first. Then I'm going to break down into smaller pieces. The full move, it looks like this. One, two, three, four, and one, two, three, four. So I'm going to break down into two pieces, lower body part and upper body part. So while standing straight and standing tall, you raise your left leg up like this and tap on the floor, tap on the ground. So now when you will be tapping, you count one and two when you will be making that tap. So up, one, up, two, so one, Two, one, two, happy, 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 one, two, and one, two. When you are tapping with your left foot on your right foot, you will be hopping like this. One, two, one, two, and one, two. Now combine tapping and hopping at the same time. It will look like this. One, two. One, two, one, two, and one, two. So you have learned on left side. So now we will learn on right side. Now raise the right leg up. And when you tap, you call number three. Up. When you tap, you call number four. So up, three, up, four. So three, four, three, and three, four. So, when you're tapping on your right foot, now it's easy to guess. On your left foot, you will be hopping. Three, four, and three, four. On your right side, now let's combine both feet together. It will look like three, four, three, four. Happy, happy, yes. So we have learned left side. We have also learned right side now we will combine both sides together twice left twice right let's start together stand straight stand tall engage your core bring lots of smile on your face from your left side five six seven eight. start one two three three four one two three four happy 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 one Two and three. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Gertie Pander of the Yukon. I can't tell you what a huge honor this has been 
to have you here on the show. I'm way more out of breath than I should be. We haven't even talked about the cardio benefits of this. You have turned people's days around by doing this. You have thrilled our in-studio crew. I'm on top of the world right now because you have reminded us of something, that this is a country full of absolutely incredible people. Um, and, and when those people are provided a platform to, to share joy um, in a way like very few others can, they truly elevate them spell themselves as, as truly special. I absolutely admire you. And I'm thrilled that you joined us today on Real Talk. Thank you for this. Thank you, Ryan, for having me while I was teaching. And I'm noticing that the rain scattered. Right now, I'm sitting in rain. And if you see me going rain on me. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was very honored for me to talk to you and connect on your show, Real Talk. Uh, thank you for having me. And thank you to all your viewers and listeners. Um, much love from, from the Yukon. Oh, man. Bye-bye. My man, much love. Gurdeep dancing in the rain. Hang on. Before I let you go, I just have one idea. If you ever find yourself back in Edmonton, I wouldn't say this on the record unless I was deadly serious. I'm envisioning something post-pandemic, um, a parking lot or, or some sort of a large location. I'm thinking we call in some favors. I'm releasing a beer, as a matter of fact, this summer. Uh, maybe if we can make it happen in time. I'm thinking maybe a, a bit of a keg party. I'm thinking we have some grills going, uh, some form of catering. I think some sort of an audience opportunity with enough advance notice for people to join. I, I'm picturing either a, a drone photography or some sort of a boom camera setup. And, and, and I would love to have a couple of hundred audience members dancing along with you and I. You think we could maybe make that happen? Yes, definitely. We can definitely make that happen. And actually, I have plans to do a cross-country happiness tour after the pandemic. So I'm going to definitely come to Alberta, definitely come come to your area. And yes, we can go to a parking lot or to to a ground or somewhere in the open space and we can invite everyone and we can dance together. Yes. Oh, my man. Okay, well, we'll be in touch with you. We'll follow up behind the scenes. The Cross Country Happiness Tour must touch down in Edmonton and we will make this happen and I cannot wait. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful rest of the day, my friend. Amazing. That is like one of, in my professional career, That's a that's a that's a top interview. That's not, I mean, the there were some profound things said on his behalf, but it, it's more just, how do you feel? Like Sam, uh, uh, take the camera immediately so people can see the smile on your face before it fades. <laughs> like, like Sam has looked, I, I this just, has been you for the last half an hour. Well, I said like, Gurdip is impossible. Like your day will get better if you see one of his videos. I don't care what you're doing. You're just happier when he comes into your life and so like that's how i feel right now amazing marjorie says thanks for bringing gurdip into our day we love you that's sarah hoyles uh m wareham says what an amazing tuesday morning michelle how's this for a comp michelle says i'm gonna rewatch this later shalane says much love from us to you gurdip emma is in for the party the parking lot party Others of you are wondering for uh, you know about details for the announcement on my beer. I'm not sure I can announce it yet. I also see someone, uh, a couple people, I believe Fatima started it off asking about belly dancing for you. For me? Yeah. Well, I would put the belly in belly dancing. I can tell you that much. Um, I'm not adverse to it. I've, I've done television segments on belly dancing. I have participated before. 
Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to brag, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sure. Hey, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I can't wait. Um, Chad says, hey, you can still do a group dance in a big park with space in between. True, but that's not what I'm envisioning. I'm envisioning selfies and hugging and high fives and handshakes. And is this my beer? I don't know, man. Uh, you know, I'm envisioning that kind of a party. All right, I'll tell you. It's with Sea Change Brewery. <laughs> I'm so bad at secrets. I can't keep secrets. You just did that. I just did it. I can't believe you just did that. <laughs> just waiting for Sam to take my camera. Still coming. Still. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Sam. There you go. It's dropped. Uh, the the bombshell has dropped. A collaboration with Sea Change Brewing, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. And it's something very special. I'm very excited about it. Smurfy says dancing in the parking lot. Can't wait. Sue is very grateful for the free dance lesson from Gurdip. Everybody's signing up for this. See, this is going to be we're, we're creating a monster here in the best possible way. It, it, the cross country happiness tour will touch down in Edmonton. I'm thinking like parking lots not big enough. Nope. No. Someone in the chat suggested the field of Commonwealth. The field at Commonwealth is 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 a definitely a very real option. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the Edmonton football team's field. If they if they would if they would yield that to us, I was also thinking uh, in Edmonton for folks outside the city. This won't mean anything to you, but but Folkfest Hill. Oh, I think Gallagher Folkfest Park, Hill yeah. in Gallagher Park. It's kind of that natural amphitheater. Which could have, like, I'm thinking the visuals, like you have downtown Edmonton in the background, You're, right? I mean, the, the drone has some, some pretty incredible <laughs> options there. Just, you can see the, just, the wheels are a turning yeah, Blake, in your head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Blake says, damn it, Jespo, I guess I can't quit drinking beer until yours is out. Um, I don't want to, I don't know the backstory there. I don't want to interfere. Uh, if you just got sat down by 15 friends that told you it's time to quit drinking beer, don't blame it on me. Uh, I shouldn't. Have- I shouldn't make fun of that. But, but yeah, no. It's gonna be. It's gonna be a beer you're gonna want to. You're gonna want to stay in the game for it. For this one, I, I'm really excited about it. The team at Kubi Energy is hard at work right now. This is the time of year they really start ramping up their projects. It's why they just went through a big hiring blitz. We told you about that a couple of weeks ago. Jake Kubiski, CEO there, the founder, was telling me, he said, we got swamped by resumes from Real Talkers. I said, well, that's awesome. And that's also kind of frustrating, isn't it? They're, they're, they're reminding us of how many people are looking for work right now. Kubi is often hiring. It's never a bad idea to send them your resume at kubienergy.ca, even so they can keep it on file. They've got a team of certified installers journeyman electricians electrical apprentices and uh well basically out of out of offices in edmonton and kamloops they're working across western canada right now they also speaking of positive vibes good vibes only they they present positive reflections every week on the show on mondays we'd love to see your videos your photos the stories of what filled your heart of what what made your smile explode you can send them into talk at ryanjesperson.com again kubienergy.ca the team at clean air club reminds you you can save money and breathe easy by taking the time to visit cleanairclub.ca and sign up to receive furnace filters here's the deal you tell them what size you need they drop them off at your door oftentimes the next day your family breathes easier and you pay less than you would in the big box store pretty straightforward pretty simple you can check them out online at cleanairclub.ca also shout out to our team at eden landscaping how's how's sherry the cherry tree looking today she's looking beautiful look at the the leaves are coming in we're getting set to say goodbye to sweet sherry there's even like new growth right here lots of new growth it's because she's receiving so much sunlight and and regular watering here in the real talk studio 
But we do know that soon Sherry will be relocated to her forever home on the on the Hoyles estate. This is just one example of how the team at Eden Landscaping is is taking your your dream of what your outdoor space can look like and customizing it to become your reality. They've been doing it for more than 20 years. Check this out at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can learn more about what Mike and his team have done to solve problems and to transform spaces. That is Eden Landscaping. And a shout out to the team at Power Ed. Of course, we've been talking about digital wellness over this past week here on the show. Power Ed is a series of, of short online and on-demand professional development courses and certificates. It's on-demand learning, basically. And, and if you're thinking, I don't have three weeks or two months to do this, oftentimes these courses are even just a couple of hours, and they're always available so they fit your schedule, whether it's leadership or allyship, inclusion, AI, machine learning, digital transformation, or more. I mean, so many options there. They're also working with organizations to develop and deploy their own digital learning strategies. You can get the details at powered.ca, that at Athabasca University. Oftentimes on a show like this that moves fast, people say, well, how, how do you do it when you, when you oftentimes don't have a break? And I've never had to continue on with reading promotional spots after dancing and dancing in the chunkiest sweater that has possibly ever been sold on planet Earth. Uh, my internal temperature right now, uh, it feels like a beautiful day in Cabo San Lucas. A beautiful day. You make it look easy. It's- yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's very generous. Gotta be boss. That's very yeah. Oh yeah. That's very generous of you. Thank you so very much. I promised it to to get to a couple of more emails uh, before we say goodbye today, and and I also wanted to give Sarah a chance to tee up something that we're doing um, tomorrow, which is really neat on emojis. Uh, That's coming up in just a second. But but a whole bunch of you were in touch with uh, you know based on on recent conversations that we've had on the show, and I wanted to read this from Janelle. Uh, Really appreciated that the team at Riverbend Gardens. It's a veggie farm um, was listening into the show Janelle says I love your show and I've been a listener since episode one since November 23rd of 2020 which is amazing Janelle and thank you so much she says I caught your segment on Monday yesterday on seasonal agricultural workers Janelle says we have about 25 seasonal employees, four of whom are seasonal agricultural workers from Mexico. Um, says we love our seasonal or our Mexican seasonal agricultural workers. They didn't fly until the end of July last year, and then they had to quarantine until August. Um, farming was really tough last summer, and our burnout was real. Janelle says this year, our seasonal ag workers arrived in April, and I'm thrilled to tell you they all got vaccinated last week. Janelle says, as long as they're here for three months, they're eligible for the vaccine. So off to the Expo Center we went. Janelle says, we're also helping one seasonal ag worker acquire Canadian citizenship through a pilot immigration program that my member of parliament told me about. So while I do value what your guests were saying yesterday, not all of it was accurate, at least not here in Edmonton. That from Janelle from Riverbend Gardens, which, which I thought was a great perspective. And we always want to if, if there's something um, that, that you hear on the show that you say, well, well, hang on a second, like at least in in my lived experience or in my neck of the woods or through my eyes or, or my perspective uh, suggests a different reality. Or at least here's an anecdote that that we think is worthwhile to helping real talkers better understand the conversation. The whole mandate of the show is to dig in, is to dig deeper, is to be perpetually curious. I said that once in a job interview, and I'm almost convinced that's why I got hired because it's been my whole life to be perpetually curious, to always ask why, to never be afraid to challenge 
different ideas. And sometimes that comes with some tension or some discomfort. And we promise to, to keep things uncomfortable from time to time in order to have those meaningful conversations. Tomorrow, we have a fantastic show in store. Sarah's been working hard on it, including a feature on, on something people m- might not have on their radar, but, but they might use emojis every single day. This is something that, that a lot of people, it might be part of their regular reality. Yeah, uh, emojis are those little icons that you can use when you're, you know, tweeting or through text. And, you know, there's the thumbs up, there's the thumbs down. And then over the years, the encyclopedia, the catalog of emojis have expanded and they've, you know, reflected different things. And so now, now the emoji is going to release the shaking of hands. And they're going to be able, I mean, that's already, that already exists, I should say. Yeah. That already exists. But what's going to change is the skin tone is going to be able to be switched around for different combos. Okay. So, and this is, so I've, I searched and I found, found a guy who's an expert on emojis. I love it. <laughs> how many, how many global emoji experts are there? It's got to be a short list. And this you've got the, the number best one. one. Yeah, this is the number one. So excited about that. So, so we're going to take that on. And this is just a part of the slate of what we have coming up Wednesday through Friday here on the show. In the meantime, of course, you know where you can get us. You can find us on your on our YouTube channel. Thank you to everybody that subscribes. If Gurdeep or somebody else made your day today, smash that like button for us. Hit like before you sign off. Tell your friends. Share our content. Thanks to everybody that does. And to everybody rocking the Real Talk mugs today. We see you on social media. Keep it coming with our hashtag. We'll talk to you tomorrow.